Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons. I'm Ellis Maxwell, editor of the podcast and co-host of a new series we're bringing you called Beyond Solitary. In this series, we explore the horrific conditions of solitary confinement, but we also dive deep into the importance of solitary as a site of struggle and the ways that prisoners resist the torture and repression of the prison within the prison, or simply the box. This series includes conversations with currently and formerly incarcerated people, many of whom identify themselves as political or politicized prisoners, as well as their loved ones from across the country with a rotating cast of hosts. We hope this series can be a fissure in the walls silencing the millions of incarcerated people in the United States. We're excited to bring you this first installment in our series on solitary, a conversation I had with Shaka Shakur. Thanks for listening. episode, Shaka Shakur gives a comprehensive account of the prison movement in Indiana in the 1980s and 90s, and how the movement has evolved and responded to consistent repression from the state. He explains how the prison system seeks to undermine revolutionary organizing, using tactics such as long-term solitary confinement, diesel therapy, and domestic exile. This is the first of two episodes with members of IDOC Watch, an organization of prisoners in Indiana and outside supporters dedicated to exposing abuses by authorities in the Department of Corrections. Links to their current campaigns can be found in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to the work of Prison Lives Matter, Shaka's article on organized white supremacy in the Indiana DOC, and information on Shaka's recent call to action to receive urgent medical accommodations. A brief content warning, just after the 11 minute mark of this episode, there is a description of guards' aggressive physical searches of prisoners, which includes a mention of rape. Here's our interview with Shaka Shakur. He begins by detailing his history in the Indiana prison system and the inside organizing that culminated in a lengthy and influential hunger strike in 1991. years. Uh, first went to prison. I'm currently incarcerated. First went to prison as a what they call a lumping or a social prisoner in 1982 as a 16-year-old kid for attempted robbery, attempted armed robbery. was given a 30-year sentence. I served 15 years in that sentence. Uh, a lot of it is solitary confinement. A lot of it uh, being shipped from, I see out of 15 years, I was transferred from prison to prison 12 times. Uh, in my early years, I say perhaps around 18, I started being politicized by uh, brothers that I had met running the hole that was on death row, uh, that was refusing to be double sale while housed on death row. Uh, comrades like Shaka mentions other inside organizers here, including two prisoners who were killed in the 1990s, but we've removed their names to preserve anonymity. You know, back then, it was a culture in the prisons of a type of cultural nationalism of consciousness it was a high level of consciousness actually mm-hmm. where most prisoners that were conscious or political we had what we call political libraries we had uh political programs that we were running like you had black studies programs that we ran or was sanctioned by the administration we had lifeless organizations and other institutions that was ran and operated by prisoners uh, that gave us a certain degree of empowerment. You know, it was common for the older older brothers to mentor the younger prisoners that was coming in, and if they seen something in you or what have you, and give you some knowledge or pass on knowledge and politicize you, what have you. That's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ran into some brothers that had libraries. You know, two, back then there wasn't no restriction. You could have you know, two, three hundred, four hundred books in your cell. You know, and I ran into guys that had books on some of everything. And so while being held in solitary, uh, I happened to run into a brother that uh, blessed me and made his uh, library available to me. Because mm-hmm. uh, at the time, I was just a young, wild kid, gangbanging, 
lost, full of rage, anger, didn't understand what was happening to my life. You know, here I am, 16 years old, you tell me, it's 1982, and you telling me I'm not getting out of prison until, you know, 1997 or some shit, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, that's how I got involved in the struggle initially. And once I became uh, conscious, you know, I became a little bit less reactionary. I've always kind of been a leader. I've always been somewhat of an organizer, even within the the uh, street structure. Uh, so that kind of evolved. Uh, and as it evolved, you know, and more, uh, we kind of began to represent a new generation that came in because this was at the beginning stages of uh, George Bush and Clinton's mm-hmm. uh, campaigns and you know, so-called war on drugs and war on the gangs and all this type of stuff, right? So we was coming in, now coming into the prison. You had a new generation that was coming into uh, the prisons uh, that was a little more street orientated and what have you. With that being said, uh, we begin to challenge some of the old guard, you know, mm-hmm. dudes that had become conformed that was political or the leadership back in the days that come from the leftovers from the 70s and so forth. We began to come somewhat challenge that uh, leadership because they had become complacent, mm-hmm. you know, or comfortable with certain things. And whereas, you know, police was carrying out racist attacks and white supremacist attacks and beatings and what have you, uh, we decided to strike back against some of that. You know, uh, not only organizing uh, within the prison, but also moving militarily to establish that, no, nah, this is no longer acceptable. Mm-hmm. And in Indiana, you have an entrenched uh, white nationalist, white supremacist uh, culture and clan culture, particularly in central Indiana and the southern parts of the state. So it was pretty, it was pretty intense. And, you know, guys, some guys, people lost their lives. And some brothers have sacrificed where now they got hundreds of years and 70, 80 years for carrying out operations or just fighting back, you know, and got railroaded. Uh, 1991, Indiana opened its first Supermax prison, which was in Westville, Indiana, called the uh, Maximum Control Complex. And uh, that was one of the most vicious. Uh, that was that was the Abu Ghraib, actually the Guantanamo of Indiana at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas we had most of us had been used to responding physically, that situation there was a no-win situation. There was no way to respond physically without being beat down. So we had to, it forced us to adapt new ways and new methods to respond to that level of oppression and brutality. I mean, we being fire hosed, we being. Uh, like fire holes in the cells, the cells is being kept refrigerated. Uh, we being beaten with batons. We being chained to beds. You know, if you didn't have your bed made by seven o'clock in the morning, they taking your mattress to ten o'clock at night. So it was just vicious. It was brutal. It was in your face. You know. Uh, with that being said, we decided to come up with the idea of organizing a hunger strike. Uh, myself and another prisoner who was uh, uh, knowledgeable in the law, we initiated uh, reaching out, found a way to communicate with other prisoners, and we organized a homeless strike that initially started off with maybe uh, 30 or 40-something prisoners. The, the idea was to uh, go as long as you can go. You know, we want as many people, if you can only go a day, two days, three days, go as long as you can go. Ultimately, the homeless strike ended up going 37 days, which prior to the strikes that happened out in California with Pelican Bay and the California prison at the time, that was the longest homeless strike in U.S. prison history. And it didn't end until they went and got a court order from the federal court to force feed the last five prisoners. And we started out like 30 or 40 prisoners. We ended up with a core group of nine and then a core group of five. I think I only went 20, like 23 days, 21 or 23 days. Uh, but they ended up force-feeding five of us, five prisoners. That brought a whole lot of attention. It also created support and solidarity in other prisons throughout the state where uh, there was protest in other prisons. 
For example, on the yard, we had like 300, 400 some prisoners that came out of all nationalities, ethnicities, and marched in solidarity and peacefully protesting about uh, what was going on down at LCC at the time and demanding that uh, the repression of the end that was going on at LCC at the time. What were the demands you laid out, and what happened after the hunger strike? How did the administration respond? laughed off because we had one of the most reactionary wardens out there that was running the place that we've ever have ever had, ever seen. But he was really a he had used a fall guy, but his history was he had been taken hostage before on on death row. So this was his time to pay back get you know, get paid back and do what he do, which is what he did. And so when it was initially it was laughed off and not taken serious until we went until we went beyond the uh, the uh, week first week period, right? Um, then it started to be taken serious, and the demands was we didn't have access to a real law library, we couldn't have access to commissary. They basically had us on a starvation diet. You really couldn't have reading material. They was interfering with the mail, you know. So just basic civil and human rights we were demanding. Right. You know, with with that. You know, we was we they was demonstrating what we call sensory deprivation and social isolation. Mm -hmm. So we had no physical contact with other than the guards. Anytime we came out the cells, we was hands on, escorted, shackles, handcuffed, and aggressive uh, pat down searches by both male and females. And for guys that had been locked down for 10, 15, 20 years, it actually felt like a form of rape to have a female aggressively. Uh, search, search you, mm -hmm. and, and and even have the body to respond. It's a sense of like almost a physical betrayal of self. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah. Uh, 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 so to piggyback on that, so what happened was because it was destabilizing the whole state for the prison system, and they was getting so much negative publicity. We uh, they brought in ACLU or ICLU to file a, to, to, to a suit. But we already had progressive attorneys, like from the People's Law Office and the Committee to End the Marion Lockdown from Chicago, Illinois, mm -hmm. that, that, had, that, had, that had reached out to us to aid and assist us. Uh, we had them that also had organized the protests and marched out in front of the prison and marched to the courthouse in the local, uh, in the local uh, city. So that brought so much attention and so much media coverage, you know what I'm saying, that they was being forced to address something, that they had to address something. See what I'm saying? Right. Uh, in the state, well, what they did was, uh, you probably could find some of this online too, uh, because they published a newsletter back then called Cages of Steel. Mm -hmm. And they law office is still functional, a prison law, people's law office out of uh, Chicago. Uh, but what the state did, they maneuvered to try to have them booted off the case and allow ICLU to govern and control and take over the case mm -hmm. uh, uh, because they were going to be more compliant and liberal uh, in terms of negotiations and any type of settlement. And ultimately, that's what happened. The Indiana Civil Liberties Union, they ultimately ended up settling us out. Mm -hmm. You know, what they did was they divided and conquered, really. Guys that that didn't want to settle, that wanted to go to trial and, and set a precedent, they started to not call out, not interact with, et cetera. They started to call out an interview and to negotiate with the guys that was willing to settle, et cetera. So it came down to a situation where you was either forced to agree with the settlement and get a few crumbs and maybe get moved out of there, get your good time, get some good time back or what have you, or try to not settle and continue to fight and end up not getting nothing. You know, even though they claimed that a promise to uh, uh, continue to represent you if you didn't settle. Right. You know? right. But ultimately, guys that took that route end up getting screwed. By the ICLU. Yeah, by the Indiana Civil Liberties Union. And that's what they do. The, the majority of the cases that they take and represent for prisoners, they end up settling in consent decrees, you understand, which is what they did there. You know, and don't get me wrong, initially it brought some, some 
basic changes where guys could have TVs and some degree of commissary and uh, they could no longer bring you down there on temporary status, uh, that type of thing. But it was only being, it was only under uh, order of monitoring by the court for five years. Mm-hmm. So after the five, after the five year, after the five year monitoring period, you know what I'm saying? All the, a lot of the, the, the changes and the uh, things that had been won based on that settlement, they took back. You know, so a lot of the a lot of the games that had been made, you know, they took back. They were temporary, right? So they were temporary. And you're talking about a struggle in the 1990s in the Indiana DOC, but you are calling today from Virginia. So I wonder if you can talk also about um, domestic exile. Uh, explain what that means to listeners, and also. But more broadly, how the prison administration moves, you know, inside organizers, leaders within the prison population to undermine their support networks and also the strength of their organizing efforts. Well, in the in the in the, in the state system historically, the response by the state to inside organizers, jailhouse lawyers, agitators has always been what they call transit. Or diesel therapy. They move you from institution. Yeah. Diesel therapy being that you constantly on the move, you uh-huh. constantly on the highway. Like they might move you three, four times in one year from prison to prison. You know, in conjunction with that, they had, with, you know, the solitary where they would just bury you alive in some prison, you know, uh, or some dungeon, or what they call the hole, or what have you, right? Right. Uh, and this was and, this, and that was Indiana's tactic. You know, they would bury you in a unit and they would ship you from prison to prison. This was prior to them building or uh, opening their first supermax and opening their first shoe. They built the supermax MCC first, and then they like within two years started working on the shoe special housing unit for those that's been secure housing unit for those that don't know what the shoe means. Uh, Wabash Valley. Indiana, which was in the southwestern part of the state, which is also an area where the Klan originated at in the state of Indiana. Yeah. Uh, so with the, the, the diesel therapy thing for moving us from prison to prison actually backfired because what it did was allow us to spread the gospel, so to speak. It allowed us to network. It allowed us to go from prison to prison and cultivate relationships. It allowed us to go from prison to prison and implement programs in terms of educational programs, uh, you know, workout programs, study programs, uh, things of that nature. So that wasn't working for them. So then it brought to the next level, which were the Supermax prisons. But this was a national thing. If you read through look at it, Look into it. The Supermax campaign begun in like 36 states. Immediately started building, opening Supermax prisons from Lexington, Kentucky, with the women's uh, Supermax, to further on with the uh, with the Marion Control Unit in Marion, Illinois, which was the uh, uh, next generation Alcatraz. You know, and then mm-hmm. it went from Marion to Florence, Colorado. And so a lot of the prisons, when they built Pelican Bay Prison in California, shoe, that was the model for a lot of the states uh, to, to follow, which is what uh, Westville, Indiana's uh, Supermax was predicated on, built on that model. Uh, to go on, moving forward on to that, so what they did with that, with the Supermax, is that began to backfire because ultimately, like even with the hunger strikes that we initiated, it created, it forced us to start writing. This is when I first started writing essays and networking with outside organizations and plugging into the actual movement on the streets. This is when I first started, this is when I first met brothers like... Shaka mentioned several individual outside organizers here. Uh, the Spear and Shield Collective, African People's Socialist Party, uh, the Huru Movement. Uh, so far, these groups and these brothers and sisters was reaching in to support us. They were sending in materials and literature to support us. They were sending in books. They were publishing our essays and our articles and writings and so forth, exposing these type of conditions and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also 
uh, forced us to develop them like a democratic process amongst ourselves. We uh, voted, started voting on everything. You know, it, it also helped us overcome a lot of the internal racism amongst prisoners. You know, it, it allowed us to engage uh, white prisoners and, and Latino prisoners and whatnot about systemic oppression and prison oppression of a, as a whole and as a class and so forth. You know, so in actuality, the repression, all it did was breed a form of resistance. Mm. Yeah. Saying, and it backfired. Yeah, yeah, so I, want to get, I want to get back to that and the theme of political education in a moment, but I also just want to underscore, you're saying the, the development of supermax facilities around the country, which may be obvious to some people, but is never probably directly stated that that is in large part a response to successful revolutionary Absolutely. organizing. Absolutely, because if you read, I would recommend, a book I would recommend would be uh, cages, cages of steel, the politics of U.S. imprisonment, mm-hmm. and uh, that 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 articulation highlights like the government's plan and strategy of targeting political prisoners and jailhouse lawyers and prison activists, and how they use that to isolate and to destroy, really, or try to destroy, to dismantle, to dismantle with the with the with the isolation and the sensory deprivation. Uh, type of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This is when you see, uh, like, the, 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 as, as, as the movement for supermax prisons continue to evolve, you see from Pelican Bay to Florence, Colorado, et cetera, as it continues to get more and more and more high tech, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because of the fact that we were still, even within those conditions, able to subvert their attempt to destroy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so what it is, is it's called, like Rashid says, cutting the head and dividing the body. Right. And so if you remove what they did, they was removing the leadership from the prisons, the political leadership from the prisons and putting in these dungeons and in these tombs, sending a message to the rest of the population that this is what you, this is what you got coming. This is what you have store for if you take this route. And in contrast, they were allowing the newly coming in gangbangers, you know, drugs, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the white supremacists, the white nationalist groups, whatnot, to flourish, mm. to develop a base, to engage in the reactionary conduct, to undermine any type of political struggle, mm. while at the same time, they were dismantling the institutions, the prison institutions that had been established and built from the, say, the 60s and 70s and 80s that had been hard fought for and hard won and that had evolved. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And, so that's, and so this is one of the reasons why you have what we have today for the most part with the, with the like you're seeing in Mississippi or Alabama with the, the wars, the game wars, whatever, the violence or whatnot. They promoting a claim and a highlighting, you know, and then they try, they create, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you can create the conditions that's right. going to bring about a certain kind of result that you engineered, and then you turn around and point to those results and say, well, this is why we need supermax prisons. Right. This is why we right. need to send people out of state. You see what I'm saying? You justify your own crimes and your own conduct. The state continues to produce those results to keep itself legitimate. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, so now it justifies them... Uh, calling for more funding, uh, tighter restrictions, so forth and so on, and undercutting, undermining any type of rehabilitative or educational type of programs. Uh You know, so now the next phase is, like, for the fair level, on the federal level, they've always did the domestic exile thing. You know what I'm saying? In terms of sending people out of their jurisdiction, what they're convicted of. But what a lot of people don't realize is that they have a thing called the interstate compact. In an interstate corrections compact, ICC, mm-hmm. where you have individual states throughout the country that have contracts with each other to swap prisoners or accept prisoners, uh, et cetera, for either a fee where they pay, you know, like in my instance, they traded me for uh, Kevin Rashid Johnson, who mm-hmm. was until recently the Minister of Defense for the New African Black Panther Party. Okay, they sent him to Indiana and sent me out here. 
his place, in Virginia at his place. <clears throat> so that would offset some of the, the cost. But the Supreme Court has ruled that we have no reasonable expectations as inmates to be housed in the state in which we was convicted. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But by law, we are supposed to be entitled to due process. In my case, there was no due process. And in a lot of our cases, there was no. We were supposed to have a hearing, which I didn't get. I was just swamped by a team of 15 correctional officers and uh, they little elite uh, squad, packed up, put in the shower for two hours while they packed my stuff, strip searched me, uh, uh, put me through electronic uh, surveillance devices to make sure I didn't have nothing in any body cavity, what have you. Uh, put in shower shoes, a jumpsuit, put in the back of a paddy wagon uh, with an infrared camera uh, with the windows blacked out and put on the highway and not told where I was going. And landed in Virginia. And I know you also have uh, had current calls about getting proper medical care for conditions you've mm -hmm. sustained as a result of being in solitary. I want to just give you a chance to share um, what your demands are around your own medical care and how that relates to domestic exile, the issue of the medical file not transferring. Now that's important because this is the thing, like with the out-of-state move, the move, the intent of the state into sending you into domestic exile is to one, remove you from your support network, mm -hmm. to remove you from your family support, to, to undermine your foundation of what you're standing on particularly if you're influential or you're part of the leadership. This is another part of chopping head off the leadership. Right. So when we get moved, like in my case, a lot of law books, legal material comes up missing. If you having right. if you're pursuing if you're pursuing lawsuits or you got lawsuits pending or whatnot, often that material comes up missing. Uh, study materials or whatnot, that material comes up missing. Right. See what I'm saying? So right. <laughs> As part of the interstate contract, the state, the receiving state is supposed to give you the same rights and privileges that you are entitled to in the state that you were in, the meaning educational programs, health programs, I mean, health care, mm -hmm. uh, jobs, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. That also means that your medical file supposed to transfer which well i've been here two years and they still don't have my complete medical file right and every time i move from one institution to another they have lesser of what medical file of mine that they do have now in 2015 i had a four level surgery cervical surgery in my neck where because i had been in isolation and solitary for 13 years my spine and vertebrate disc had begun to deteriorate. And I was diagnosed with what they call spondylosis and degenerative disc disease. So my neck had began to actually lean to one side and pinch nerves that radiated across my shoulder and down my arm to my fingertips where my, my hands tingling, I would lose grip, my grip, etc. It took me three and a half years to finally get them to give me an MRI in Indiana to determine what was going on after they kept misdiagnosing me. Mm -hmm. Once I got to hear my iron, they seen the severity of it. They was forced to give me the surgery. So they, what they did, they put cadaver bone in between four vertebrates in my neck. They put a steel, a plate in my throat. They put screws and other hardware in my neck to align my spine in my neck area. Okay. But they, what they didn't do, I had, they also had a protruding disc in my thoracic three, what they call a T3, that's pressing on a nerve. I have a pinched nerve in my cervical seven, my C7 vertebrae, which they didn't correct. And some other issues along those lines. Coming out here, trying to explain it to these people, have gotten me nowhere. Without the you medical know, file. Without the medical file. Right. Because they can't really do nothing. They can do something, but they can't, they don't know the history. And I was just recently told a week or two ago, well, old news is old news. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have an impact on this and that. 
You know what I'm saying? So what you're telling me is that my medical history is is irrelevant. Huh. You see what I'm saying? Right. We see what you know. tell. <laughs> the doctor would never. Right. Tell you. You're telling me you you're telling me that my medical history is irrelevant to this or that. Uh, so to to a proper diagnosis. So anyway. Uh, I was at Sussex, the first or second prison I went to since I've been out here after an intake, and they put me in to see a neurologist. I've never been. I never got to see a neurologist. Mm -hmm. They put me in to see a neurologist two or three times, supposedly. I've not seen a neurologist yet. They put me in for a telemed, a teleconference, uh, to talk to a neurologist. Again, this was before COVID and after COVID. Mm -hmm. Again, I haven't seen a specialist. Now, I go over here last week and talked to the nurse practitioner about it, and I was trying to tell her that, look, I'm in pain, mm -hmm. you know, that you are required, and it's in my file, that I'm supposed to have a cervical pillow, you know, which is a, a wedge where I can prop my neck up. Oh, we don't do that here. I'm supposed to have a mattress or a Craig mattress to lessen the pressure on the nerves and so forth, from spine, et cetera, or a double mattress. Again, we don't do that here, you know, which is BS. Or they, they don't really want to do that, you know, because they put everything in the context as if you were trying to get over on them or you are right. coddling prisoners or something. You know, you're trying to be comfortable. You know what I'm saying? Right. But you wouldn't treat somebody on the streets like, right. you know. But yet, you got my medical history and documentation. I'm telling her, you got the x-rays, so you know the extent of my injury. You know, so I'm sitting here in pain as we speak, you know, muscle rubbing to try and alleviate the shit that I'm dealing with right. and not getting, you know, and not really getting any type of uh, results or relief from these people. Right, and not getting any care in part because of this system where they don't, the files don't follow you, even though they're the ones that mandated that you be moved to Virginia. Yeah, and, 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 to, and to some of it, to some extent, it's dysfunctionalism. Right. As, a, as a system, as a whole, and then on the other hand, it's a certain degree of indifference. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Beyond Prisons, the first in our new series on solitary as a site of struggle. In the rest of the episode, Shaka Shakur speaks about the importance of political education and the challenges of growing consciousness behind prison walls, where the system broadly and guards more acutely exploit racial, ethnic, and religious differences in order to suppress inside organizing. Shaka also describes IDOC Watch's commitment to building dual power. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you also, getting back to the, the importance of political education, because you're describing this shifting landscape with supermax facilities being built and needing to shift the terms of organizing. And I also wanted to connect it to the, the moment that we're in now where you've seen such a massive uprising against police brutality and demands to defund the police, abolish police. But we've also seen the rise of right-wing groups, white supremacists, and I know something you've written about is the prevalence of white supremacist organizations and individuals in prisons as well. So I wanted to ask kind of a, a big question about how do you see political education and the importance of it in this moment in dealing with all these uh, very intense developments that are coming to the fore right now? Well, that's what I was saying about when they started removing the political leadership and what have you. Like, well, basically what they did, they carry out a COINTEL pro-style, shock doctrine type style program behind the prison walls. You know, of neutralizing leadership, destabilizing, destroying, and undermining political movements and political organizations and what have you within the prison systems. And it allowed the more reactionary elements to flourish and develop, like like mm -hmm. the white nationalists or white supremacist elements or whatnot, which were back in the day suppressed, not allowed to flaunt certain things or what have you. Now it's like everywhere, right. you know, uh, 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 you know, and it's it's it's, 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 it's almost shocking on some levels, but 
it's just where they're in and in, in the most instances the administration and particularly in, in prisons that's rural are, are, are predominantly white areas whatnot you know they cater to that they they, they and it's not the stereotype those areas but it's just the reality where they promote that type of stuff you know what I'm saying and they enable it you know, and they and 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 and, and, the, and the prisoners themselves enjoy a certain degree of white skin privilege behind the walls. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but going back to the original question, with the the, the move for the out of state, with the, uh, out of state move and exile move, part of that is what people don't realize too is like if you go online to support prison lives or. Uh, VirginiaPrisonWatch.org or IDLCWatch.org. Uh, is an article on there that uh, Kevin Rashid Johnson wrote, but he was transferred from Virginia to Oregon, where the prison cracks, prison administrators falsified his his record, saying that he was moved because he was, uh, killed a uh, Aryan uh, prisoner. Then they fought and they then they falsified and said he was a sex offender. And what have you? So what they were trying to do was actually get him killed. You know, and he was dropped into an area that was that was heavily uh, white supremacist orientated and sectarian in terms of didn't, groups didn't mix it, uh, all of that, right? Uh, so that's a good article to read. I would recommend. And so what that does, it allow you to be murdered, and the sin the state can uh, disavow uh, any type of uh, hands in it. Right. You know, so it's a hidden agenda. It's a hidden agenda there. White supremacists serving as extensions of the state's agenda. Exactly, and 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 and, and unfortunately, and I'm experiencing that out here. Uh, unfortunately, you have today you have the unconscious uh, street organizations and other elements, and uh, even black prisoners who are non-political, non-conscious uh, collaborators with the state for their own personal interests who and what I see out here is where Virginia they uses the old and it's a southern state, a neo Confederate state, they uses the the class uh elite uh uh boss type system of, you know, the haves and the have nots and we gonna cater to the haves to get the privileges to, to control and monitor the have nots and play that game, that manipulation game, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? Right. And and and, 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 and and that's pervasive out here. You know, I got police informants ear hustling uh, over listening to our conversation of sitting behind me right here. You know, commentary. I got a running commentary, a meet the press commentary going on. And that's part of the problem here. You know, if you conscious, if you political, if you critiquing the system, you snitch it. But what we're trying to do, and what we're doing in Indiana, for example, which is what to, to answer the other part of your question about the organizing that's going on now. Mm-hmm. Like so years back, we created an organization called Indiana IDLC Watch, Indiana Department of Corrections Watch dot org, which was which is a prisoners' rights, human rights uh, organization that was geared towards not only monitoring the conditions inside of Indiana prisons, but the human rights abuses inside of Indiana prisons, but also giving prisoners a vehicle for uh, getting their materials out, their writings out, uh, uh, what's going on behind the walls, out, et cetera, right? And also create inside, outside working relationship with brothers and sisters on the streets and activists on the streets that's building and cultivating relationships in the community and structures in the community and educating people in the community about the prison industrial complex. Right, right. See what I'm saying? And creating our own reentry programs and transitional programs that when guys can come out of prison, not only they got something to come come out to that they could be absorbed in and help maintain their balance, but also join the struggle and join the movement to further <clears throat> the work and change in the prison conditions and educate people as to the criminal justice system. Like one of the things that we're doing now that we had back then, but we really didn't have like a centralization or actual structures in terms of organizational structures, you know, political organization structures, uh, which is something different today. 
uh, where we have, like I say, the IDLCwatch.org. We have the New African Liberation Collective. We have Prison Lives Matter Collective. And, and then this time, we are actually networking, being able to network and organize with outside revolutionary formations, outside activists and prison rights or abolitionist groups or anarchist groups that's actually, or Black Lives Matter groups who's actually pushing a left uh, wing politic or radical politic and not a liberal or co-opted politic right. and who are active in the community and we're cultivating inside outside types of relationships uh, whether it's books through bars program which we're running um, through our organization whether it's the toy drive uh, getting toys for kids for, uh, to have parents incarcerated uh, which we've been running for the last three or four years uh, and now we're trying to get laptops for them, uh, whether it's a uh, uh, local uh, gardening program in the community where we're taking over abandoned lots and uh, growing food and whatnot and distributing it to the community or uh, networking with a local community center, et cetera. So these type of programs is not only exposing us to the community and allowing us to give something back to the community, but allowing us to legitimize ourselves and show that we are really not only have we changed or we're political or we're trying to create a new society, but we are uh, practicing the concept of dual power. Mm. You know, and we believe that the concept of dual power is that we create and build our own structures and our own institutions parallel to the government where we become less dependent on the government, that we create our own structures and institutions within our community and meet the needs of the people in those communities as opposed to depending upon the state to do that. Because it allows us to, one, strip away the legitimacy of the state and the falsehood of the state and the propaganda of the state. You know, a lot of us as so-called citizens in this country, we get spoon-fed from the time of birth, you know, that we live in this great country, a democracy of equality and justice mm-hmm. and freedom for all and all that stuff, you know, what we call a paper tiger and for us, the Constitution, etc. When we know on the ground that that reality isn't true. You know what I'm saying? Not to say that we're mm-hmm. not privileged in this country in contrast to other countries, but that's because the government of this country commit more crimes than most governments because they have their fingers in so many other countries' resources and ties and so forth. So you can go to a country and see, I mean, go to a department store, a grocery store, and see 10 different brands of coffee. You know what I'm saying? And that's a benefit. That's the spoils of an imperialist government that's controlling and dictating and dominating so many other foreign countries. With that being said, it's, 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 we, we need to educate people like what's going on now in the streets around the George Floyd case and the Breonna Taylor case and whatnot and the uh, relationship of the police to certain communities as an institution, you know, because this legitimacy and falsehood need to be stripped away so people can be educated and politicized and get involved in changing the social reality in which we live. Right. So whether it's the criminal justice system, uh, whether it's... Uh, the people getting evicted or homes getting foreclosed or mm-hmm. people coming back from these imperialist wars, the, the so-called the, the veterans that they don't have the resources or not that they're supposed to be entitled to, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, these are the contradictions of this so-called democracy, you know, and we get, and, and a lot of times it's glossed over. You know, we live in such a great country, how can we represent the highest rate of incarceration anywhere else in any industrialized country in the world? How can we have over 5 million people homeless? How can we have the highest suicide rate in any other industrialized country in the world? You know what I'm saying? How do we have more people, uh, mental health and uh, medication, self-meds, or mental health uh, type shit than anywhere else in the world? See what I'm saying? Absolutely. So somewhere it's, a, somewhere it's a contradiction in that narrative that needs to be critiqued and evaluated and built upon, and a lot of times it isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's one thing to expose the contradictions that you're talking about because I think, especially right now with COVID happening, there's they're kind of being laid bare for people. But how do you also kind of make an intervention to to bring people's thinking past the point of just exposing the contradiction and presenting an alternative? Because that's, we can show through our practice an alternative. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the New African Liberation Collective in Terre Haute, I mean, that, uh, one of the, well, Terre Haute is one of the bases, but like Indiana, for example, we've opened up five chapters of IDLC Watch in different cities throughout the state. 
in, in, in conjunction with the work that the New African Liberation Collective is doing. Um, we are showing through our practice and not just rhetoric that not only that we can do for ourselves, that we can pool our resources and do for the community and network in the community and organize in the community to take care of, to meet our needs. When COVID first hit and people didn't have food or able to be transported or have transported vehicles or whatnot, we had comrades and collectives that was running our own free taxi service, mm. going to get people's medications, you know, showing our neighbors that we don't have to fear one another, even though people had who have never interacted or spoken to one another before, who was in their own little box. You know, we bridged that, we bridged those gaps through practice, through, mm -hmm. through showing what can be accomplished when we talk to one another, when we respect one another, communicate and engage one another, what can be built. And this is what I was saying about the thing about recently we had been advocating to develop a network of progressive attorneys and lawyers and volunteer legal students uh, and paralegals to put together a coalition who were progressive and was willing to work on guys' cases that have been railroaded in prison or sitting in prison for 15 to 20 years, mm. who have been sitting in prison for 15 to 20 years. Uh, that just need a little attention on their case or have resources, but they can't find a principal or a, a principal attorney uh, that's not just going to take our money and run. But recently, we've been able to get off the ground with that by having uh, the president of the Indiana uh, National Lawyers Guild, uh, David Frank, come out and endorse and support our effort and this coalition. Mm -hmm. who, willing to, who actually stated that he would be willing to act as a coordinator and a facilitator to get this program off the ground. He presented that to the body of National Lawyers Guild, who also endorsed the sign-on as an organization for the state of Indiana. This is huge. This is significant mm -hmm. because it opens the door for us to pull resources together. It opens the door for us to put in place criminal attorneys as well as civil attorneys to focus on the criminal justice system within the state of Indiana, as well as the conditions of confinement in the prisons. Uh, with the human rights abuses and so forth that's practiced by the DOC. For example, they're illegally taking our good time, you know, where you're extending people's sentences beyond for, for decades, where you're uh, illegally sending people out of state without any type of due process, you know, uh, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So that could possibly catch on to other states right. by the, our example. And the fact that you have law students and legal students and paralegals that's willing to open up clinics, legal clinics, and do voluntary research on cases. You got people that's erroneously and illegally, not only erroneously or illegally convicted, but actually not guilty. Mm -hmm. You know, or people that hasn't been given uh, so-called by protections of the Constitution fair trials, like myself, you mm -hmm. know. I'm in prison, technically, for basically shooting up a police car. You know what I'm saying? Nobody got hurt, et cetera. Bogus traffic stop, charged with attempt murder, crime scene stage, missing physical evidence, forensic evidence doesn't match up with the narrative, et cetera. And I was given 63 years. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, you know, where does that happen? You know, how does that happen? You know, in the, in the state of Indiana, they imposed uh, new citizen guidelines in 2014 that was supposed to reduce the rate of incarceration and so forth, which is how they sold it. They increased the amount of time that you got to do for violent crimes to 85%. And within a year, all the county jails were screaming that they was overcrowded because part of that law was that if you had five years or left, less, they could keep you in the county jail where you were supposed to have opportunity to the programs. And what that did was open the door for now all the county jails to scream that they overcrowded and they need to expand. Mm. You know, um. so, go, yeah, so going back to your question, what this does for us, Alice, is allow us to create institutions, right. structures, educate the people, get the people's family, prisoners' families involved in that process. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And give them a different type of view and version of the system other than what we've been indoctrinated with. And let them know how they can get involved. How can you affect change? How can you mm -hmm. challenge this and that? Building power outside of the state through solidarity.
Exactly. Yeah. And it also inspires prisoners because once mm -hmm. you see the solidarity and the work that's being done on the streets in your in your name and on your behalf, it encourages us to get involved. It encourages mm -hmm. us to take responsibility and take initiative to also coordinate and communicate and organize with those that's representing us on the streets. Right, right. Well, it's really exciting work. And Shaka, thank you so much for for taking the time here. Really appreciate this conversation. Well, I appreciate the opportunity being given, man, uh, for the podcast and to get the information out. And like I said, one of the reasons I wanted to do it because what we're trying to do is build networks mm -hmm. and we're trying to establish beyond the superficial boundaries that's been created by the state, you know what I'm saying, whether it's the state borders or whatever else. Right. And know, let them know that we can network and, 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 and engage in some solidarity and, and work together. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And let's, let's do this. And, and, it's, and that during this time of what's going on in the country right now, in the climate of the country right now, who best speaks for us? You, how you going to talk about criminal justice reform and you don't have the voice of the prisoners that speak for themselves? Right, right. You see what I'm saying? There can be no Black Lives Matter if there's not a conversation that Black Lives Matter don't, work, don't matter behind the walls. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? There can, there can be no prison lives matter if prisoners don't have a voice themselves to speak and represent for themselves. Mm -hmm. We don't need we don't need to have don't take a paternalistic attitude that you think that you know what's best for us because you don't if you haven't lived our experience. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. <laughs>